the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. Today, we are doing week two of our new series called One. We're going to be spending 11 weeks. This is the longest series we have ever done. We're doing 11 weeks going through Mark's Gospel, chapter one. Yes, 11 weeks on chapter one. Last week was a really pacey week. We went through five verses. The reason I say that's really pacey is because today we're going through one verse, just one verse today. So yeah, we're we're aiming to achieve a lot today. Just one single verse of Mark's Gospel. There's going to be some fast weeks and some slow weeks. Today is an incredibly fast, slow week because it's a really fast, loads of content, loads of cool stuff, but really, really short at the same time. So today, what we are looking at, it all starts off in 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1, if you want to look on the City Hill app, um, you can read with me, or if you want to grab another Bible translation, you'll find, knock yourselves out. 2 Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Azariah fell through the lattice in his upper chambers in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messages telling them, go inquire of of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, arise and go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is there no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of? A foreign God? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. And the messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you come back? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us. And he said, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says, that's it, Ari, that's exactly what he said. Thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up. You shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And then the king said, oh, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. I love that passage. I love it because... You go through all this kind of stuff and then he goes like, so what did he look like? And they're like, oh, he was wearing this like crazy hair thing going on and this just little leather belt around the waist. And then straight away the king goes, oh, Elijah, oh, Elijah. I love that because I'm a huge UFC fan and I'm a big Conor McGregor fan. And Conor McGregor had the first ever uh, opportunity to become a t- simultaneous two weight champion of the world in the UFC. First guy to ever do it. There have been guys who'd won a title in that weight class, then moved up or moved down and won a weight class, but at different stages of their career. They never simultaneously held both. And he was stepping up and he was doing it at Madison Square Garden. The first time they'd ever have a pay-per-view event at Madison Square Garden. And so when it came to the promo of the event, everyone comes dressed as they come and they always just wear suits or whatever. Conor McGregor rocks up in this red turtleneck with this huge extravagant white fur coat on and everyone is looking and everyone's talking about it and Twitter's going crazy. And it's going crazy because he'd ripped off Joe Frazier, one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all times outfit for a key fight that he had there. 
And so when everyone saw him, they were posting all these pictures of Conor McGregor and Joe Frazier side by side, the images, and they were like just going crazy about it. Like, wow, the symbolism. He's making an announcement. He's making a statement. He's saying, I'm one of the greatest of all time. And he's making the statement that I'm going to step up and I'm going to do the impossible and I'm going to become a simultaneous two-weight world champion in the UFC that no one's ever done before. And what does he do? He knocks out Eddie Alvarez and he lifts and he has both of those belts. Now in this passage, we hear the king going looking elsewhere and the prophet steps in, does what God tells him to do. And then when the king's going, well, who said this to you? What crazy guy would say something like this? And then they go, oh, he was dressed like that. And straight away the king goes, oh, Elijah. Yeah, that's what Elijah does. Elijah goes around wearing like strange hair on, hair on his, his body and wearing this leather belt around his waist. And then if this was a movie, if this was a movie, you would have this scene at this moment. It wouldn't go in the story. There's loads of cool stuff in the story, but it would skip that. And then it would go 800 years later in the wilderness, not far from Judea, just outside Jerusalem. And then it would scene out to the wilderness. And you would see John the Baptist moving out and about. And people would be looking at John the Baptist. And if they had Twitter, he'd have been trending because they'd have been going, oh, oh, John the Baptist is out in Elijah's rags, bro. Have you seen it? Like people would be like, hey, hey, John, Elijah called me, wants his outfit back. Am I right? Say what? Like he just like ripped off his entire threads and he's going out and about in it. And it hit me because if you look at the world today, I mean, one of the greatest people in terms of business and technology in my lifetime is Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs, all he ever wore was that black turtleneck, those glasses, those blue jeans, and those New Balance trainers, the same ones. Bought them again and again, everything he bought in bulk. And he'd just go through the same clothes constantly again and again. Now, if you imagine today that a new tech startup came on the scene and they were blowing up, people going, oh, it's the next unicorn, it's the next billion dollar company, it's a unicorn, it's a unicorn. And then he had a product launch announcement and they were filming and out he stepped wearing the black turtleneck, the blue jeans and the New Balance trainers. People would be going crazy. And then halfway through, he put on the glasses. Oh, it would be like this, like Steve Jobs is back from the dead. He is in the building. This product launch is lit. People will be talking about that all around the world. So if anyone's listening from Silicon Valley, just a heads up, that's a great marketing strategy if you want to get your product out there. Dress up like Steve Jobs, make an announcement. Even if your product's whack, people are going to be talking about it. And that's what John the Baptist does. And he does it because Steve Jobs. He does it because Conor McGregor. He does it because that's what the people are looking for. But why does any of that matter? Well, there was a prophecy through the prophet Malachi And he said in Malachi 3 verse 1 and then also Malachi 4 verse 5 and 6, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. What we talked about last week. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi 4 verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children the hearts of their children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So people have been looking around for Elijah to come again. This guy who would stand up, this guy who would be fearless, 
this guy who couldn't be bought, this guy who couldn't be swayed. It didn't matter if you were a king, it didn't matter if you were empowered, it didn't matter if you had riches. If you came to him and you were going like, oh, let me know how this is gonna go. I wanna know if I'm gonna live through this. I wanna know if I'm gonna win this battle. I don't know if this is gonna happen. Elijah would be straight down the line. He would be God's man. He would say how God saw it. He would say how God said it and he would stick to his guns. He could not be bought. Now, John the Baptist is this new guy who starts preaching in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere and everyone is leaving Judea and Jerusalem to hear this guy out in the wilderness and he's this new Elijah that can't be bought. He's wearing the outfit. He's not the guy you can take to dinner. You can't wine or dine him. You can't go, hey, Elijah, how much money do I have to pay to make this preaching thing that you're saying about society and about my company and how it's acting? How much money does it take to go away? Because you look at his threads and go like, this dude is not in it for the money, man. He is not in it for the pee. You couldn't take him out and go like, hey, here's some expensive food. Have some caviar. Knock back some champagne, Elijah. Because he'd be sitting there and he'd be crunching on locusts and wild honey. This is a guy who can't be bought. This is a guy you can't get on your payroll. This is a guy that you can't move in. Because in Israel, everyone had their sex within Judaism, their beliefs. Their groups, there was division, all these different types of views, different rabbis, different people, all claiming and preaching different messages. And what would happen is you'd get baptized in this ecclesia, in this church, in this synagogue, saying, I'm a part of this view, I agree with this rabbi, I'm baptized into this tradition because this is mine. And then what John the Baptist did was he went out into the wilderness and he started baptizing there because he was like, let's cut everything out, let's cut all the different opinions out of the equation and let's get back to God. Let's get back to just you and God in the wilderness, stripping it all back, reconnecting, coming alive again. And so people were flooding out to see this new type of Elijah who would bypass the kings, who would bypass the powers and the influences that be and take people directly back to God with no filter in between, just them and God baptizing them out in the wilderness. And so Elijah has this outfit that he wears, which is so unbelievably prophetic. It's so powerful because it brings up visual imagery. It says something to his target audience. His, his outfit preaches a better sermon than most people have ever preached, probably better than anything I've ever preached, just in his outfit alone. It has spoken to the lower classes. You guys come out here. We're doing Elijah, baby. We're bringing it back. He would ask a question of them because at the time of Elijah, the people, not just the kings, but the people were swingers, man. They were swinging with this God, that God, and every other God. They'd have multiple gods in their, in their bedrooms at once. Like they were just down with absolutely everything. And God through Elijah was calling them back to him. And so when we look at Malachi, he's calling the fathers back to their sons, sons back to their fathers. But actually, when we look at John and we look at what Jesus preaches, he brings us back to the father and he brings the sons back to the father and the father back to the son. Like John is this layup for Jesus to kind of dunk it in. He brings it all together and his outfit is preaching to them. It's asking the question, what in your society, what in your culture are you just embracing because culture does so? What part of it are you just down with because everyone else is? You want to know something about locusts? Locusts, actually, when they're in their early stages, um, are in isolate, they're like alone. So they're very spread out. There's just like one on their own, doing their own thing. And then as they gather together, they become one movement. It only takes them a couple of hours to stop acting independently and start acting as a swarm. How many of us just start acting in the manner that everyone else is around us? How many hours does it take before you ditch everything that God wants you to be unique in to become a part of a swarm that's just about a rampage of destruction through the world? How long does it take you to get a selfish desire that wants to push you ahead of everyone else 
to describe everyone else. How long does it take for you just to fit in with a capitalist idea of me, 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 me? How long does it take? How long does it take before you're not a little locust doing your own thing, but a part of a huge swarm just destroying everything in its path? John asks the question that Elijah asks of society. He preaches sin and repentance, and he highlights to a nation you need to wake up because there's things you're embracing that you need to shake up, that you need to th- rethink about. There are things in your life, there are habits, there are decisions, there are attitudes, there are mentalities, the way you see other people, the way you see the world, that you have to shift. And he does that just by wearing the outfit he's wearing, just by how he got, just how he woke up like this. And, and you and I, Elijah, hashtag, I woke up like this, you and I need to get woke to what's in our lives that we just embrace and move with just because we're one locust among many and we just start to swarm in with everyone else. So his outfit speaks to, to, to that particular class and people group, but then his outfit also speaks to the upper echelons. He says, you're about to get stepped to. He says, you had power in your areas of influence, in your divisions, in your sex, in Judaism, and yet you didn't bring any reform to the nation. Well, I'm pulling them away from you and I'm taking the power out into the wilderness and I'm handing the power directly back to God that he is gonna be the final say in all of this. So the question for you and I becomes how we are going to surrender ourselves to God again, how we're going to bring ourselves back to God, how we're going to ask questions of who and what we are. So the writer, when he says that John is dressed in camel's hair and he's eating locusts and wild honey, he's saying a lot. He's saying a heck of a lot. So that's one John, one Mark, Mark 1. Jeez, the series is about Mark and I'm saying John. It's no sleep for days, bro. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a level belt around his waist and ate locusts and ate wild honey. So his outfit is preaching one message, but then his diet is preaching some next message. So on the one hand, we've got that statement being made. Then was like, dang, Elijah's back in the building. Elijah's back in town. Things are gonna get shaken up. The next thing we hear the writer saying about his diet, you and I move past this stuff because we're like, okay, let's get onto what's relevant. But to the audience at the time, these things in this one verse unpack so many layers and so many ideas and so many concepts. So when he starts to speak about locusts and wild honey, all sorts of things start going off in their mind. So the children of Israel were promised honey when they were slaves in Egypt. The first two times honey's mentioned in the Bible, the first time is Joseph's dad, Israel, going to his boys who've just been to see Joseph but don't know it, he's saying, listen, if he's calling you and saying you have to take the youngest with him after we lost the youngest, we need to sweeten the deal. Take these goods, take some honey with him, sweeten the deal, make things okay so that we don't lose Benjamin, don't lose my boy, don't lose my boy again. He's putting the honey in to sweeten it. And that's what life is like, isn't it, man? There's so many killer blows in life that we just need moments where God comes and he sweetens our lives. And then the next time we hear about it is straight away God is talking to Moses out in the wilderness out by the side of the mountain in Horeb and he's saying to Moses, listen Moses, I've heard the cry of the people and I just want you to know that I'm going to action it, I'm going to deliver it and I want you to know I'm taking them from where they are and I'm taking them to a place, I'm taking them to a nation that is flowing with milk and flowing with honey. So as soon as the readers read this, they're looking at their nation, they're looking at how things are politically, how things are socially, how things are not, there's no trickle down economics, it's just the guy at the top's killing it and everyone else is kind of stuck here and they start reconnecting with this promise that there's a land that God has, there's a plan that he has, a kingdom that he has that flows with it. 
It's not all stuck at the top. It flows out, it flows down to everyone. There's a land flowing with honey. And so, Mo- so, so when we see this story with Moses, we then see John living off the very promises of God. As he's eating honey, he's eating the imagery for the children of Israel that he is being sustained by the promises that God has for them. Not to sell out for anything. Because John isn't selling out. He's not buying into any other view. He's not ditching it for anything else. He's living off the promise of God. He's living off the promise that God made. But then at the same time, John has a, a balanced diet. He has a balanced diet because on the one hand, he's living off the promises of God, but who knows how life really pans out? Who knows how life really pans out? Who's had those moments where your legs just turn to jelly? When you're absolutely terrified because you've heard some news about a family member? Or how many of you have had that moment where you think you, you, you've got an illness that you didn't see coming? Or, or how many get into a financial moment of peril where you become so afraid you have no idea how you're gonna provide for your family, how you're gonna keep things going? And you have this moment where it just hits you and it's complete darkness, it's completely bleak. And you know what it's like? It's, it's like for people living in the Middle East who have to deal with locusts. Because what starts off with a small problem with a few locusts doing their own thing, eating some stuff, within a couple of hours they swarm together and over a matter of days, the swarm becomes so big, it covers hundreds of thousands of square kilometers. One swarm can, can cover like a thousand, not hundred thousand, about a thousand square kilometers. And within that space, what ends up happening, they all get in sync with one another and they all start copying each other's destructive habit and they all come together. And what you end up happening is you end up having within that space, when you get to the largest size of swarms, you end up having 50 to 80 billion locusts moving together in one swarm that can fly up to a thousand meters high. 50 to 80 billion. And do you know what they can devour? They can devour in one space of land the equivalent of one million elephants. Because every one of these locusts eats 100% their body weight, two grams, every single day. And you've got 50 to 80 billion. Let me tell you, when 50 to 80 billion locusts turn up on your door, devouring your harvest, man, you end up in the Marvel Universe. Dread it, run from it, destiny comes around all the same. Thanos is at your door and there is nothing you can do about it. You can't kill 50 to 80 billion of those insects. They are gonna devour everything in their path. They're gonna devour all the food supply. What would happen is people would see the locusts coming and straight away what would hit home is I'm living in the Middle East and all I can think is Eden and Aria aren't gonna make it. My two girls are gonna starve to death because the locusts have shown up because Thanos is here. I don't know if Jody's gonna make it. I don't know if I'm gonna make it. Who am I gonna lose because these locusts have shown up? Do you see how real that is? It just got real, real fast. That's the world that they lived in and that's the world we live in today. One tenth of the world's population is constantly economically at risk of locusts today. Just because we live in London, one tenth of the world population are at risk because their business can be destroyed like that. Their food supply can be gone like that because these guys show up. You know, I read something recently that I absolutely love because in Israel, 
You see, it's, it's the desert type of lo locust I described. There's loads of types of locusts. The desert locust is the worst, which is why I gave you those statistics, because it hits it home real fast. In Israel, that's what they have to deal with. And when they turn up, rags us on. You're losing everything. There was a restaurant owner in Israel who just started cooking it as a delicacy. There's a swarm. It's here. It's going to take out my food supply. I'm going to start cooking them because the protein in that is insane. And so I was looking at this guy's all his recipes. I'm going to try some out this week and film it and put them on, on the City Hill YouTube because I was like, dang, this guy's killing it. He's got like a la carte locust menu because like they're taking it out. My business ain't going under. You're going under. I'm going to eat you. And so when we look at John the Baptist out in the wilderness, what we see is he's living off the provision of God, but on the opposite side, he's living off the very thing that's designed to leave him barren, broken, and dead. It's meant to leave him for dead. And he's sustained by it. And you know what? It's the same as me and you. It's the same as me and you. There are these moments in our lives that leave us broken, dead, and buried, and there's nothing left, and yet God sweetens it with just a little bit of honey just to keep you going by through those moments, those times. It's so bleak, it's so bad, you wanna pack it in, you wanna quit, but he just sweetens it just enough that you make it through that period. And then when you make it through that bleak period, do you know what happens later on? You find out that the season you've gone through, as disgusting as it is, and if you're in that season now, you can't comprehend this right now, it's an offensive idea, but it's the truth. There comes a day when you come out the other side of that situation and you find out there was more protein in that situation than any other situation you've ever been for in your life. You come out the other side and you find out that that situation didn't just sustain you and isn't just sustaining you now, it starts sustaining your friends, it starts sustaining your family. You find out that you nearly killed yourself but now you're a source of someone else not dying because you find that through your bleakest, darkest hour, his word is sweeter than honey and I detest all other ways and I turn from it and you tap into his promises that just keep you alive for long enough that this will give you protein you never dreamed would be possible. You never dreamed. I remember my darkest hour. I remember Stonely train station as if it was yesterday. I remember waiting for the last fast train. I remember stepping up, ready to walk in front of it. I remember walking, walking to the edge of the platform and God just sweetening my life a little bit, honey. I remember God just speaking to me, saying, you're a promise from me. You're a promise for me. I was on the edge, it was there. I was, I, was, I was milliseconds away from being dead and gone, like T.I. Gone, but just a little bit of honey. When I walked back up the street, I didn't walk up back up the street with it all together. I walked back up the street, it's still a hot mess. I walked today still with some of the hurts and some of the stuff that went on in my life at that time. But I look back and it sustained me. And I've shared that message at other places where people, I remember sharing it at one church and someone got their, their, their kid along who tried to kill themselves recently. And their kid is still alive today because of that message. It brought a shift in their life because actually there's so much protein in this, it won't just enable you to live on, it will enable others. It will enable others. That's the goodness and the grace of God. Guys, Sometimes people preach this thing, if you come to Jesus, it's all gonna be okay, it's not. You come to Jesus and you find a honey sweeter than anything else that will see you through that season, but will allow you to devour the most painful and darkest memories of your life and not just use it to sustain you and make you stronger, fitter, healthier than you've ever been, but enable you to be a source of restoration for others. Then the Lord said, Exodus 3, 
Verse 7, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of a land to a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. The place you're in is dark. It can be bleak. It can be desperate. He sees it. He hears it. The plan is to bring you out of there. The plan is to restore you. The plan is to, to sweeten it. The plan is to sustain you. You can be in three different phases. You can be in a phase where you look back and you're being sustained, or you can be in the phase right now where it just feels like that. Like, God, I've been talking to you, I've been crying out to you, and I feel so alone. I feel like you're not moving. I feel like you're not acting. I feel like you're not doing anything. I feel like I'm on my ones here. And yet he's sending Moses to deliver a people. Sometimes you and I feel on our ones, but he sent Jesus that we could have life and life more abundantly, that he can deliver us from where we are. And Jesus' word is sweeter than honey. And it tastes better than any other thing. And I detest all other ways. I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt that God's provision is enough for you. I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt that even the things that are designed to destroy and leave your life for bare and for dead are the very things he's going to use to sustain you in ways you never dreamed possible. I'm going to pray for us today. Father, I thank you that in the Exodus, they felt hopeless, isolated, and alone. They didn't even know that you were talking to Moses at a bush by a mountain somewhere. They just carried on their day getting the beat down and the smack down and enslaved and with a genocide going on. That's what they live with. And yet you were orchestrating a plan to deliver them. I thank you, Lord, that maybe today some of us feel like we're in that position all alone, but you're orchestrating a plan to bring us a place that flows with honey. I pray, Father, we would experience your deliverance. I pray we would experience your favor and your love and your grace and your mercy upon our lives. But I also, Father, I thank you that knowing no matter how dark that day, you will use that moment not only to sustain us, but to be a source of life and sustenance for those around us in desperate need of your love and your grace and your mercy. I pray that you bring healing and comfort and peace to our lives. I pray you sweeten it. But Lord, ultimately, I pray that we will be a source of sustenance for those around us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Guys, you've got to have a balanced diet. You've got to have a balanced diet. It's all about the honey and the locust. Amen. We really hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london.